0: Welcome to the Pediatric Autism Wellness Support Podcast. We are providing practical applications in tricky situations for parents and providers of children on the autism spectrum. We are here to educate, advocate, and have a little fun along the way. We're so glad you're here. Hello, and welcome back to our second episode of the PAUSE Podcast. My name is Kelly Clark and I am your host. Uh, Today we will be discussing what we're going to label as Autism 101, so the down and dirty of what autism is and how it's diagnosed and what to expect with that diagnosis. So we're going to jump right in. Um, Autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means neuro, meaning brain-based, developmental meaning it affects development. So. As part of the diagnostic criteria, because it is a brain-based disorder that affects development, it must be present in early life. Generally, um, symptoms are noted around the second birthday, but typically just before age three, there should be some sort of difference in a typical development that raises a question of could this be autism. Autism affects two major areas. So area number one is the social communication interaction area, and then the other area is in restrictive interests or repetitive behaviors. And for a diagnosis of autism to be given, there must be um, deficits in both of those areas in social communication as well as restrictive or repetitive behaviors. So, it can't just be one or the other, it must have both. So, when you talk about autism spectrum disorder, why is it called spectrum disorder? So, what we mean by spectrum is that symptoms occur in a variety of combinations, um, and they can be present with varying ranges of severity. So that means you may have a nonverbal, um, 12 year old essentially. So that would be kind of more on the severe range of the, of the social communication side, but, and their restrictive interest may be, uh, Marvel, Marvel characters. So um, superheroes, which you would say is inappropriate for a 12 year old boy to be interested in, in superheroes, right? And it's, it's appropriate until it's not, um, (laughs) whenever they can recite facts or they can speak of absolutely nothing aside from the superheroes and they can tell you what, changed in their costumes between the i don't know 1970 comics versus the 1974 comics or something in that nature and we're thinking we're not necessarily in a typical interest this is really more obsessive and so that's again it's not necessarily problematic for for a child to have a, a really intense interest in superheroes so um that might not be as severe as another child who is on the spectrum, who maybe is on the other end of the communication range. So maybe they're hyperverbal, maybe they can speak in much more formal, expansive language than even professors in a college setting. Um, But perhaps they cannot converse with others in a back and forth manner and they can't hold a conversation because they just have to talk about that repetitive interest or that restrictive interest and that's all they can do and they just have to get it off of their chest they can't stand it they want to talk about their restrictive interest and nothing else can be a topic of interest you know what i'm saying so that's I'm, these are some examples of the the spectrum and the range of how things could occur you can have non-verbal You can have typically verbal or you can have hyperverbal. You could have a repetitive interest that seems pretty typical or a restrictive interest that is just off the charts that they can't even function because it is just so much a part of who they are that they are so interested in this specific um, topic. And so that is just a very small look at what we mean by spectrum I intend to have another episode um, later to, to dive a little bit deeper into that but that's just kind of a, a brief overview of how these patients can present very very differently so what about Asperger's right like that was a term that we used to talk about for a very high functioning very intelligent person that was in the autism spectrum well that um, diagnosis and criteria got removed from the DSM-5 or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders with the revised criteria that came out in 2013. So um, the the DSM is kind of a provider's go-to for diagnosing any sort of a mental health condition, which we talked about earlier. This is a neurodevelopmental disorder, so um, a little bit different than a what I would consider to be a mental health condition. Neurodevelopmental is more a difference in the brain that's present at birth. A mental health condition can come about later in life, you know, such as a PTSD, trauma, something of that sort. But regardless, we find our criteria for autism in the DSM-5. And so our current edition um was revised and and published in 2013, and something to be aware of is that there's generally a new edition published about every 10 years. So we're due for a new revision, and I definitely see that some of this diagnostic criteria changing um, for ASD now that we are becoming more aware of of the differences and how things are presenting um, and there's just an increase in prevalence, which we'll get to in a minute, but I could see things changing a little bit, but currently the DSM is very um, specific about the two areas we talked about. So social communicative deficiencies and restricted and repetitive behaviors. Um, Those have to be present, both of them, and you must see those in the early developmental period prior generally to age three. So um, I also just wanna say with that, the DSM-5 also tries to specify whether this diagnosis is present with or without intellectual impairment. So um, that is kind of hard to assess, especially in the younger kiddos, because getting an IQ score on a two to three year old can be very challenging. Um, So a lot of times children that are diagnosed younger we don't really assess that part of it. We can make our best guess, but really that's better evaluated whenever the child's a little bit older. Um, most school systems, if the child is in a special education, um, program will actually perform IQ testing around the age of six is pretty standard, but, um, that can vary school to school and program to program. Something else that the DSM-5 um, likes to specify is if autism is present with or without language impairment. And so a language disorder may be present, but it doesn't have to be that um, difference in social and communicative behavior doesn't have to be language specific. Like I said, you could have a nonverbal child that you could have a hyperverbal child. They may be able to communicate, you know, language very, very, um, adequately and so sometimes that's not always present but we just like to tease that out is their language impairment present or not um and then something else the dsm-5 wants us to do as of the 2013 revision is determine the level of support need and so these these levels are rated at a one two or three one being requires support two being requires substantial report support i'm sorry and three being requires very substantial support so um and you're rating those for both of the areas um that have to be present so you could be a level three in the social communication because um, you may be nonverbal and you may need, you may require significant support to help communicate needs in that area, but you may be just a level one, just needing some support in the restrictive and repetitive behavior side of things. So maybe you have a STEM that's not really disruptive, not really distractive, and it helps you focus. It's not problematic. So it's there, but we going to do much with it. Probably not. We're going to give you a level one in that area. Um, And this is very hard to assess. I just want to put this out there. Our diagnostic tools that we have to diagnose autism does not give us an indication for what level of support these children are going to need. This is a very subjective um, conversation and it is not an indicator of whether your child is lower or higher functioning. It is not an indication of where they are on the spectrum. I have my parents ask me that a lot for these kiddos is where, so they're a level three, so they're super low functioning. They're, they're really bad. And I'm like, no, that doesn't mean that that just means they need a little bit more support. Um, so, and, and we have no idea how these kiddos are going to grow and change over the course of their lifespan. And, And we expect them to change. So even if they're diagnosed at a level three, doesn't necessarily mean that that level of support is going to be necessary whenever the child is older. So, um, I just want to let you know that, 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 that is not indicative of what their life is going to look like. Um, and going back also to the, with or without intellectual impairment, um, you know, we find that the majority of children on the autism spectrum have an average intelligence. So intellectual impairment can be present on autism, but it doesn't have to be. And then, like I said, there are those children who would have qualified for an Asperger's diagnosis prior to 2013 that have just incredibly high IQs. Um, so it's it's a spectrum in itself of intellectual impairment. And, and don't let that be something that you are concerned about when it comes to your child's diagnosis a, a diagnosis of, us of autism does not indicate that they are intellectually impaired until you have their iq tested and then you'll know for sure so um moving along with that i just wanted to dive a little bit deeper into um specifically the the two areas of the autism spectrum disorder so that social emotional reciprocity Um, that's really, um, that fits under that social communication and interaction. So are they capable of back and back and forth conversation? Most conversation should be back and forth, right? There should be some give and some take. Sometimes children with autism or individuals with autism have a lot of issue with back and forth conversation. Um, they may answer questions without probing for more information, or they may just, Choose not to answer at all and we see that a lot if they don't find that it's a necessary conversation they just won't respond and that's just how their brain works it's not that they're being rude it's just they don't see the the need for that um sometimes they will not show shared enjoyment in interests that are not their own so you could be really excited about um i don't know your your brand new shiny car that you just got and you might show that to a child with autism and they may look the other way and not give you the time of day to look at your brand new shiny car. If that's not an interest to them. Um, you know, most people would at least, uh, tolerate that for you and like try to show a half emotion there. They're not just a lot of children on the autism spectrum. Don't see the need in it. This is not true for every child on the autism spectrum, but it is a something we see pretty, pretty standardly that they just don't have that shared enjoyment. Um, something else that we see a lot is that they lack empathy and um, they don't have the ability to relate to others so you may be very sad about something that was very hurtful to you and they can't sympathize with that they don't have the ability to um, have that shared emotional state and again not true for every child on the spectrum, but is true for for several. And um, something else that we see is that a lot of times these kiddos don't respond to their name specifically in the early developmental period. Um, this is definitely one of those red flags that your pediatrician is probably asking for in those well child visits. And it's important to note that um, if your child is not consistently responding to their name really, you know, I would say by 15 months, there's, there's a concern they should know their name by then. And if they're not, it's not typical, um, but children on the autism spectrum don't, they just don't. <laughs> so that's, that's definitely something to consider. Um, in the t- terms of, um, nonverbal behavior, autism spectrum individuals typically have, um, decreased eye gaze, um, uh, meaning that they're not going to hold eye contact with you. Um, they're not going to use as many gestures as a typical, um, developing child may. Um, so they may not nod their head. Yes. And no, they may not wave bye-bye. Those are definitely something that, um, we see a lot facial expression, either inappropriate facial expressions or just lack of facial expression altogether. They don't raise their eyebrows when they're surprised. They don't, um, smile great big when they're happy, like they, sometimes just are very flat in their affect. And again, sometimes they have overabundance of facial expressions and it's like inappropriate at times. So they may be showing excitement and joy in a situation that's very sad. Um and also joint attention. So joint attention is a threefold process of Looking to a person, looking to an item of interest and looking back to that person to ensure that they have shifted their gaze to look at the item of interest. Um, and that's a very typical development that happens in early childhood. We see that a lot, you know, um, a kid may look across the room at a toy that they want they look at their parent and they look back to make sure that the parent is looking at the toy there's a three-point gaze change and um, children on the autism spectrum typically don't do that um, or don't do it well so that's something that we evaluate for um, another area of communication and social interaction that we evaluate as relationships and typically children on the autism spectrum lack interest in their peers Um, they don't have really any friendships and we'll we'll see that whenever we talk to um say a 12 year old that's coming in for an evaluation that's one of the questions I always ask is do you have any friends at school and you know usually they'll be like oh yeah we I have lots of friends and oh yeah what are their names um and then that trails off and I'll say well what do you like to do with your friends and uh, I don't know what what makes a friend different than somebody that you go to school with uh, I don't know like they can't, they don't d- depict the difference between a friendship and just a peer. Um, and so that's something we see a lot. Also, they have a lot of difficulty with imaginative play. So you'll see that in your, you know, toddlers and preschool age kiddos that typically developing children are able to play pretend, their entire play schemes are make believe. Um, and children on the autism spectrum don't do that. They just like to sit there and, you know, play with their toys, typically in the exact same way every time. Um, for boys, sometimes that means they're sitting there with their trucks and their cars and they just like to spin their wheels and watch the wheels spin. Sometimes that means they like to line all their toys up or sort them by color or what have you, but um, it's not that imaginative play that we see develop in the um, like preschool toddler age. In turn, in... Um, Regards to the restricted and repetitive behaviors that's kind of broken down into some different areas as well. So, um, we usually look at stereotyped repetitive behaviors. So this is the kiddo you think of when you think of a stereotypical child with autism that may be doing hand flapping, spinning, rocking, pacing. Um, you know, sometimes we see that and sometimes we don't, it doesn't have to be present because there's other areas that we can meet this, um, criteria with, Um, sometimes we see it in language. So um, sometimes they have what's called echolalia, which is um, I had one parent describe it to me that their child was a parrot and they say, oh yeah, he just repeats everything back to me. I'll say, how was your day? And he'll say, how was your day? And I'll say, well, what did you eat for lunch? And he'll say, what did you eat for lunch? And he just repeats. And that's that's what we um, call echolalia. And so that is something that we do not see in typically developing children that is really specific to autism. Um, also sometimes children on the autism spectrum, I think I alluded to this earlier, but they will use a more formal use of language. And so they're, they're like interested in these big vocabularies and these big words, and they use just this very more, more formal language is, it's just the best way to describe it. Um, and that's not typical. I mean, most, most kids don't do that. And also they do what's called scripting, which is similar in ukulele except for it is like long excerpts that they can memorize. Uh, I see this a lot with kiddos with their favorite television shows or YouTube videos. They can pretty much recite the entire thing verbatim. Um, we see that with books a lot um, that they can, you know, really reiterate the entire second chapter of the specific novel that they are just incredibly interested in. And it's just like, they have that photographic memory for that, that type of language, which is interesting because sometimes it's difficult for them to develop language. And then once they get it, they just memorize everything. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to a point, which we'll get into a little bit in a different episode, but, um, sometimes children on the autism spectrum are what's called consult language processor, which means that they, learn to talk and speak by memorizing these like strings of words and that's just how their brain functions and we see that a lot in autism. Um, another thing that we see a lot is this rigid and flexible behavior. So there's distress with transitions, with changes in routines. It's very difficult for them to, you know, not go to daycare for example you know if you're going to take a day off and take a vacation and that's like out of their normal routine and that is just very very difficult for them the first time you take that child to church it's out of their normal routine it's very very difficult for them um and that we see that a lot um we also see which i kind of talked about before just these abnormally obsessive interests sometimes they're objects sometimes their activities sometimes their topics um i had a kiddo that I evaluated a few weeks ago who was very interested in science and he was interested in specifically historical science. And I'm talking about like a five-year-old who could tell me what the flow rate was on an ancient Roman septic system. And a typical five-year-old would not be able to, you know, look up that information much less regurgitate it to me later. So That's, that's what I mean by very abnormally obsessive interests. Um, and then there's also a big sensory component. So this can be sensory seeking, this can be sensory avoiding, and that can be in any of the general senses. So I have seen kiddos in all the senses. They have to touch everything or they don't want to touch anything. They're specific about the type of clothing they wear. They don't like tags. They only want to wear jeans. They only want to wear shorts, um, or maybe they're orally stimulated. So they chew on absolutely everything. They put everything in their mouth um, or sensory avoidant when it comes to mouth. We have these kids that just won't eat, won't drink, won't put anything in their mouth because they just hate it. And, and that's something that we see a lot on the autism spectrum. Um, for the sake of time, we're going to kind of, um, jet past some of the other things I had for this podcast. I think that it's important for you to know, um, these are kind of the basics. I know everyone's wanting to know, what causes it? And the, the main thing that I can tell you is that we just don't know. Um, there are so many studies going on right now that is looking into it. We know that there are certain genetic components, but there are likely environmental, um, things that are causing these genetic mutations. We live in a vastly different world than we did 50 years ago in terms of our environmental exposures and it's likely that these environmental exposures are causing these genetic mutations that are maybe not affecting us directly but are affecting our children and so it's causing these these genes to turn on that weren't previously turned on and we're getting a disorder from it and so that's that's kind of what the the general consensus is right now again we we haven't proven that theory. Um, the studies are still out there, so, so we can't say, but we do know that genetic plays a role because about 16 to 90%, um, of twins that have a, a, an identical twin diagnosed with ASD will also have ASD. Um, it's also more prevalent in siblings. So, um, a child with ASD has about an eight eight to 18% chance that a sibling will be diagnosed with ASD. Um, and so it's, there's definitely a genetic component to it. We just don't know which genes and why these genes are, are all of a sudden coming about, um, because they weren't present previously. We can see that with our, with our prevalence trends. I mean, you're looking at, I, 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 I should have looked this up, but I, th- I think it's somewhere around a 240% increase in the number of children being diagnosed with autism since 2020. So in the or sorry, since 2000, as compared to 2020. So you're talking about in a 20-year time frame. Time frame, you have a 240% increase. We went from like one in a hundred kiddos being diagnosed, that so we're down to one in um, 36, I believe, is the current um, diagnosis rate for autism and i think that that's largely due to we have better tools we have more awareness we have also just an increase i think that all of those are true um but speaking of tools our our diagnosis has changed you know right now it used to be you know 50 years ago that it was only diagnosed from a Psychological specialist who understood what this disorder was, but now we're having more people diagnose it. We have the ADOS, which is the um, play-based assessment that we use for for kiddos and adolescents and adults on the that have concerns for autism. Um, that seems to be pretty reliable. We also have the ADI, which is the um, autism diagnostic interview, which is just a series of questions that we ask that are very specific to the autism disorder, which again is pretty, re- um, pretty good at, at figuring out if, if this individual does have an autism disorder and um, the DSM five criteria is, is used, obviously, and um, that's how we, we know if a child meets the qualifications for the disorder, and then just having a good history and clinical judgment. Um, There's no true medical test right now. There is no lab. There is no MRI. There is no ultrasound in pregnancy that can tell you if your child is going to have autism. Um, But that is something I think we'll see come about in the works in the next several years. There's definitely a lot of research going into that right now. But we just don't, don't have good answers for for the why behind it um, so we'll move ahead to treatment um treatment for autism is really um our, our goal is to get early intervention on board and when i say early intervention i mean hopefully before age 3 if we can get these kiddos captured and get services started by age 3 we just really see great improvement in their overall results um, The brain is more adaptive, it is just really, they're able to grasp onto things so much better before their third birthday. And that's why um, most states have early intervention programs that are government-based. So for the state of Missouri, that's Missouri First Steps. And a child prior to age three will qualify for services with any form of a developmental delay, but autism for sure. Um, And so what we do with that is an individualized treatment plan based off of the child's needs. So that may be speech, that may be OT or occupational therapy, that may be physical therapy, depending on like what their fine and gross motor skills look like. maybe ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis to help curb some of those risky behaviors, um, specifically those that are maybe unsafe. Sometimes that means we need to get individual therapy and counseling on board for these kiddos. They may be really struggling with things because they don't function the same as their family members or their peers at school, and they're having a hard time dealing with that. Um, I really feel that family education and counseling is very, very important. I think I alluded to this at our in my last podcast, but a diagnosis of your child with an autism disorder can be a grieving process for an entire family. And I think that working through that grieving process with a counselor is very, very important. Um, and then with that, having appropriate parent training, which I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're listening to this. I hope that I can provide some minimal education so that you feel more empowered to help your child. Um, but parent training is very important for good outcomes for these kiddos sometimes we need biomedical treatment um, that's typically reserved for um, co-occurring disorders or aggressive behaviors that really need to be dialed back um, for there to be a safe setting for this child so that's um when i said biomedical i mean like medication generally speaking um, autism does not require medication management unless like i said there's a Aggression or safety component or a co occurring disorder that needs to be managed. Um, and then for older kiddos, we typically like to get them into some sort of a social skills group to help facilitate more social interaction and conversation and things of that nature. Um, so that is where I'm going to cut this off today. That's actually a little bit longer than I was anticipating it being. Um, But I do feel like I give you a pretty good overview of the entire disorder. We are going to dive much deeper into a lot of these areas, a lot of these topics within the next few episodes. So I hope that you will return and we will see you soon.